when, I, when my wife was 30, she was already a properly broken human being with three children and, you know, working full-time, and she'd planted a second church with me. Um, she was working full-time outside of the church. And uh, she said, you know, when I turn 40, I'm going to France with or without you. And uh, at the beginning of this year, I just thought there's no way it's going to happen this year. But she's turning 40. Lo and behold, a month ago, she worked for like two or three nights a week, all nighters. I mean, I was married to a a monster of a person without sleep. But she pulled money out the air and booked a ticket to France. And she's been there for four days already. (laughs) And she's staying for three weeks all on her own. As long as she's been away from the kids is three days. So she's away for three weeks. Um, so I'm so proud of her, actually. She's sending pictures of her, like, in front of Eiffel Tower and the Louvre and in front of Van Gogh paintings, and I'm so proud of her. And then she's going to go Paris, Paris for how many days? Three days. And then she's going to go on her own. She's with a friend at the moment and sitting in a chalet in a, near, near a mountain village near Mont Blanc for two weeks, 14 days on her own. And um, she doesn't have a watch. And there's a bakery 900 meters away. So I might get more of her back than I sent. <laughs> Unless she runs out of money, because I think food is quite expensive. <laughs> Thank you for coming. So this is our final night in the How God Sees Women um, adventure that we've been on. I'm going to say, uh, I'm probably going to speak for like 20 minutes. Then we're going to call up a team and, um, and we can do, I'm going to ask, that team, just to share anything that was top of mind from what I share now, and then any Q&A. We're so not experts. I, I'm an author. I, like, I researched a book. I've thought about it. You know, so I've, I'm, a, in a sense, a content expert. So I'm speaking out of the overflow of that. But um, as a church, we're on, on a journey like any community would be. And, uh, but we are passionate about gender equality. We think it's a kingdom value. It stuns us that this is not a kingdom value in every local church. And we've, um, you know, we're wanting to really put down a deep foundation stone in the life of this church that this would be the way things are. And uh, so I want to speak quite practically tonight. Tonight we've kind of left over a lot of practical things that we haven't touched on. But the, the first thing I just want to say is, is that complementarianism, this belief that benevolent patriarchy is God's gift to humanity. That's what complementarianism is, eh? Benevolent patriarchy. You don't don't want malevolent patriarchy. You want men in charge of families and communities. Uh, Some of the the founders of complementarianism believe that even in society, men should be leaders. There's division on that point. Um, But the, the idea is we need to take the men in society and teach them to really lay down their lives for the women and and the other men that they lead. That's, you know, that's our gift to society. And I think we could do much better than that. I think that the church should give to society the gift of gender equality. And um, our society, there's been so much research back behind the suffering of women in this world. I'm talking about, um, I'm talking about things like, Sorry, let me just get there. There we go. In societies where men have precedence and women are subordinated to them, we find a preference for boys that leads to tens of millions of aborted female fetuses 
inequality in education, inequality in health, inequality in income, inequality in work, inequality of ownership of property and work for women, widespread and accepted violence against women, and the trafficking of women primarily for prostitution. I read um, Scars Against Humanity by Elaine Stalky, a Christian sociologist, and I actually couldn't put any of it in the book. It's just, just too intense. We live in a world where there is a war on women. Most of the victims in the world are women, and most of the perpetrators are men. And uh, there's a lot of research on why this happens, and it's a complex issue. And, uh, you know, what are the forces in society? But, but sociologists who've worked really hard to identify the problem say that at the root of it is the perceived value that a female is worth less than a male. That's a major problem in society. United Nations have set a goal, like how can we promote gender equality that a lot of Western nations are enjoying and take it to the rest of the world. And uh, I read this United Nations report as they're trying to mobilize this. I mean, United Nations need to work especially with funders, with society, with governments, with organizations. And uh, as you know, that faith funders are our big funders. You get these Christian organizations, they give big money to fixing problems in the world. They keep finding that Christian organizations will not give money to gender equality issues. Because Christians are like, hey, no, no, we don't believe that. Women are meant to submit. And um, where do people in Africa and Asia, Christians in Africa and Asia, get their theology? Yes, they read the Bible. They're getting their theology from America. So America is churning out gender inequality as doctrine. It doesn't hurt women that much in America because they are in such a gender-equal society that they're mitigating factors, counterbalancing it. But when that doctrine gets to Africa, it kills. It destroys. It decimates. The average experience of a young girl in, in Africa or um, Asia, they are at the mercy of the disposition of their brothers and their fathers and their uncles. In that culture, it's assumed that men are in charge of women. They get to decide what they do with lesser beings that are, that are their property. Christians come along and say, no, no, you need to, you're in charge of them, but try to be nice to the people. That's good. Much better is to challenge their entire vision of women. Help them see women fully human, fully equal. The resources of the gospel are so immense. Complementarianism is a disaster. An absolute disaster. It's a total disaster. We live in Africa. I'm so freaking sick of this theology coming out of America. How dare they send this crap to our continent? How dare they? And then, sorry, I didn't realize I would. You know, prosperity theology comes out of America. It's trashing the church in Africa. It's trashing the church in Africa. In America, it doesn't hurt that bad. People are giving away all their money to the pastors. Africa. These people are so poor, giving their money to the pastors. Prosperity theology, it's a, it's a lie. It's a way of concocting together scriptures that... 
that you can argue against. Complementarianism is a way of concocting together scriptures. It's just a very sophisticated way. You have to give it to the complementarians. They have pulled together an incredible web of arguments. Grudem, Piper, George Knight, these these are very sharp men in America. They're living in a time, the end of last century, where they are spinning at the changes in the world. And they get a sense, the problem is this uprising of women. We cannot allow it in the church. They marshal the most conservative scholars they can to write these uh, quite remarkable works. And uh, immediately there's pushback from from really good theologians, but they, they win the battle. They win the battle because Christianity is particularly strong in the hyper-conservative parts of America. They win the Southern Baptists. And uh, we can do better for Africa. We must take a message of gender equality. We need to, Africa especially is so, so, they are so receptive to, to uh, you know, religion is still a major influence. These women are not just victims of their dads and their uncles and their brothers. They're victims of the teaching happening in the churches that they're part of. We need to use what influence we have to bring about a change uh, in these churches. Yeah, yeah, it matters to us. Mm. Have your way. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yes, Lord. Yeah. Yes, Lord. Yeah. Yes, Lord. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, lovely prayers. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. 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 Yeah. So let me make some practical suggestions for applying gender equality. First one is that both husband and wife should be the pastoral leadership team of the family. Both husband and wife should be the pastoral leadership team of the family. Now, I preached this morning on how the husband is the kafale of the wife. And um, it doesn't mean authority over, it means source over, source of the wife. Uh, It's joined intimately to the wife, like a head to the body. And um, only in the 8200s 
did Kefale start to quite strongly swing towards meaning authority over? It was a, a very rare meaning in the first century. For the first time in the 200s, we've got Christian literature where someone uses the phrase, the husband is the Kefale of the home. Had he said that in front of Paul, Paul would have went, what? <laughs> I invented the term. The husband is the Kefale of the wife, not the children. And uh, you can see uh, once you adapt, well, if he's the head, if he's authority over the wife, that's a wrong interpretation. Well, then he's the top. Next in the tier is the wife, then the children under that. The wife is, you know, on the totem pole, like number two. So you get a lot of teaching in complementarian circles that the husband must go seek God about how he can lead his family. He needs to get with other men. He needs to be inspired to lead his family. And... I'm all for men awakening to whatever spiritual and practical influence they have over their wives and their children. Not wanting to undermine that at all. Passivity in men is not a cool thing. It's a terrible thing. We need to awaken and encourage men to use what influence they have. But when you stick to Scripture, the Bible describes in the, in the patriarchal Greco-Roman world and in the ancient Jewish world, the husband was the, 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 you know, the leader of the tribe or the leader of the, 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 this family unit. However, the Bible, uh, there's a difference between what the Bible describes and prescribes. When it comes to prescribing, it's amazing how many passages there are about how children need to obey your parents in the Lord, not just your father, honor your father and mother. In no less than four places, Scripture affirms the dual leadership of mother and father with the formula, then a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife. The father shows a son leaving a family led by both parents <laughs> to start presumably a new family once again by both parents. And um, my personal experience reinforces this insight. There's one thing better than a father leading his children. It's a father and mother teaming together to lead their children. Despite the ever so popular application of talking about the husband is the kafale of the wife to mean the husband should be the spiritual leader of the home. By the way, that's a complete thumbsuck. To jump from the husband is the kafale of the wife to the husband is the spiritual leader of the family. Please, I'm not undermining what spiritual influence you have. But it's evangelical creation. It's sucked out of the air. Because people are like, like tell me again what it, it, a head is. And you go, oh no, it must be his, his bringing spiritual leadership. So you might need to throw away those notes you once took, once took about how the man, not the wife, should initiate prayer or call for a family devotion or choose which church the couple or family should go to. I propose it's better for both husbands and wives to do all they can as a team and as individuals to seek God, to select and settle into a church, and to pursue the spiritual flourishing of the others in the family. Better than saying the husband is the pastor of the home, very popular teaching in, in America, the, the mom and the dad are the pastors of the home. And then another big idea. In leadership scrums, men need to realize they need women. In society, there's a big shift that's been happening, and it's not going to slow down. Where you know, you've got leaders of companies, organizations. They've historically been all men. Now to introduce women into these scrums. And uh, the church is behind this really encouraging uh, 
you know, progression and it's got theological excuses for why it doesn't happen. But men struggle with it some, and they often use the language, it changes the dynamic in the room. <laughs> the truth, however, is that when a diverse range of people are in a leadership team, the conversation might be a little more complex, but it will always be richer and be more likely to generate a wider perspective and therefore better decisions too. There's huge research being done in organizations and companies. Uh, you know, what happens when, when, you know, trained women are in that leadership team and they've been given confidence to be there? That team performs better. I did this um, online course uh, through Cambridge University three years ago, and it, and it revealed this huge study that said when you've got a team of men leading a company, I don't know how they work this out, but 58% of their decisions are, are really good. The rest, not so much. Put a woman in that team and that jumps to 73%. It's much better for a church to be led by men and women. Changes the dynamic, absolutely, but it's a dynamic that needed to change. Of course, there's times when men get together. Um. If you've been a complementarian church like I have, when you hear this whole theology of like maybe we should include women, you immediately think of practical things. You're like, oh no, once a year we go away, just the men, for a night over. Are you saying that we've got to get a girl there? It's just awkward. Where's she going to sleep? You know, and actually that is enough to just block your whole mind to the possibility. It's crazy things like that. We just need to make the logistical changes. The dynamic needs to change if it excludes women. Now, the, probably the biggest block to this theology in complementarian churches is you've got pastors and their wives. And then, uh, you know, it, depending on this church, often the wives are not part of this eldership team. And then they hear that they might be getting women onto this eldership team. And the, the pastor's wife goes, what? Is my husband going to be teaming with a woman? And, uh, I mean, I'm, I've heard, I had enough of these conversations. See, these are practical things that we need, to, we need to just get over the practical thing. We need to be driven by theology. Let's admit that it is a little complicated and dynamics need to change. But we need women to lead and teach with men. Can we just close those windows? We need to see women lead and teach. I've got a few friends who were sure that women couldn't, were not allowed to preach in a church. They couldn't preach doctrine. They couldn't preach with authority. It's only right for them to preach to women and to children. Kevin DeYoung will say this very clearly. And, uh, and then one day, they were somehow, they were caught of God. They're in a room. A woman stands up, and she preaches with power. And God speaks through this woman to them. And they're like, I think I'm second-guessing my theology right now. Complementarians, Dan, Danny Burke Danny Burke leads the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. He warns complementarian churches, do not give your church a taste of a woman leading. It's, it will give them a, it'll lead them in the wrong direction. Just don't let people experience this. And it's not just men that struggle with the thought of a woman teaching. If a woman has been sitting in a church for decades, she can't think of it either. The pushback comes from both men and women. But we need to actually let people see it and experience it and go, oh my gosh, there's a woman leading and it's working. There's a woman preaching and God's speaking. Another one is that women must be given the same offices as men. Same offices as men. 
Um, I come out of a soft complementarian world where you're stuck with this theology that excludes women, and, um, but you know, come on, we need to get women part of this. And especially wives tend to make it into this, the, the mix. You know, so they're sitting in an eldership meetings. They get to preach. Sometimes you get a woman who's not a wife. You get her to preach. And, uh, and, and, you, and you somehow stretch your, your interpretation to include this. It's not consistent. The people that have come after you the hardest are the complementarians. You are skirting on the edge of complementarianism. <laughs> so the real minority movement in all of this is soft complementarians. <laughs> um, but what they'll do is they'll get people, women to do the task of pastoring, but you're just not allowed to be called a pastor. How harmful can it be? You get enough women like that to say, it's not like I want to be a pastor. I don't mind. But remember the words of Jesus. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. When you can identify the gift and the grace upon a person, call it what it is. You get more grace through that person. My little wife, she poured out her life next to me for 15 years in the church. She, she was happy, she, she, but she wasn't a pastor. But she pastored. She wasn't meant to teach, but she taught. My reflection is had we just given her the name pastor, someone lay hands on her and say, you are a pastor, we would have got 30% more grace from Julie. She would have risen up a little bit more, and people would have opened their hearts that much more. And then another one, female leaders and preachers need to be mentored. Leaders take a long time to make. You spot them, they come in, they're not developed. You coach them, you give them extra attention, you give them opportunities, you give them training. After a few years, they're flipping good at what they do. People can't remember how, how not good at what they do initially. In my previous church, some of the finest preachers now were really, we took risks. We let them preach and people were like, I don't think you should use that guy again. But we used that guy again and we trained that guy. Then comes a point where you go, like, hey, she's talking about all these female leaders and preachers, but where are they? I'll tell you what, they walked in just as undeveloped as the men, but the entire system is biased towards the guys. If they're given enough time, it's just the guys that you've developed. You need to put women in the leadership pipeline. You need to train women. I've got a friend who has uh, abandoned her complementarian church on this point. She just knew in her bones that she wanted to be a preacher, but in this church they didn't have women preachers. And then they would do preacher's training, and her husband, who doesn't preach as well as her, is invited to preacher's training. And she used to say to him, please just record the training for me. She had to, like, smuggle the training. What's going on? And then number, number six, rethink couples ministry, <clears throat> complementarian model. I call it the Peter and wife model. You've got a gifted leader guy, supported wife, supportive wife. You get a bunch of those <clears throat> leading a church, and actually their wives are quite happy. Uh, you know, because, because you get a lot of women that, are, that just want to support their husbands. I, I, think, I think a huge chunk of women... I don't know what percentage is, and it's fine. It's beautiful. You know, so the wife coming alongside her upfront husband, supporting him. 
But what about the Deborah and Lapidoth married couple? Deborah, if you remember, highly gifted, prophetic, leadership gift, second to none, married to Lapidoth. <laughs> Lovely husband. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, here is, here is prophet and judge Deborah and her lovely husband. And, and you know what? Even in complementarian circles, it happens in movements where you just get an outstandingly gifted woman. You get a Beth Moore in the Southern Baptist. Like, whoa, this gift. And you find a way to like make it work. And she can't lead a church, but she can speak at conferences. And she can travel around. But she's not allowed to speak on Sundays. We can use it for this. We can use it for that. She's got a supportive husband. But there are some Debras and Lapidots, and, and, and we kind of go, oh, that's not, you know, we, we, we're so inclined towards the insecurity the guy might feel. We don't realize that the guy that married a Deborah wanted to marry a Deborah. I mean, if I was Lapidoth, I would want to marry a Deborah. Talk about, you know, just being, marrying somebody, going places. I'd want to support her, stand with her, encourage her, nurture her gift. And here's the thing, I would have gifts too, and I'd use them. Every one of us have gifts. Some of our gifts are upfront and big. Some of our gifts are behind the scene. But when a married couple's come together, we can support each other. Then again, there's, this, there's also the Priscilla and Aquila model. Now you've got Priscilla and Aquila. And if you've been on Facebook, uh, I have been, um, I shared last week's talk about Priscilla's pastor. There's some people very unhappy with the, even the possibility that this woman might have been a church leader. But, um, but the amazing thing about Priscilla and Quilla is their names are mentioned side by side every time. They're a perfect team. Every action they do together. They, they start and run a tent-making business together. They invite Paul into their home. They relocate to Ephesus. They invite um, Apollos into their house. They teach him. They train him. They, they run a church in their house. They relocate to, um, to Rome. They run a house church in Rome. You know, they return back to Ephesus after, after the, the church is ravaged by false teaching to support Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 4. They're always mentioned together. Next to Timothy, the people most mentioned in the New Testament as Paul's support, Aquila. Still in Aquila. So you get times when you get a leadership gift, ministry gift on a man and a woman, and maybe that's why they chose each other. Maybe that's why they got married. Maybe they get married and then they realize, hey, we've got, you know, we've got, we've got compatible leadership gifts and these two locked together. Let's be honest, they, they're very exciting. In some of the really exciting big churches, you get this Priscilla Aquila leadership couple. I mean, I'm sad about what's happened at Hillsong, but at Hillsong there was this Brian-Bobby Houston dynamic and, and sad what has happened, but they released these, leadership, these Priscilla Aquila, they attracted and released in Priscilla and Aquila leadership couples all around the world. It did amazing work for Jesus. I know lots of people who are Christians now because of work started by Priscilla Aquila couples. Then you get the Esther and Xerxes model. Esther is writing laws, she's intercepting a genocide, she's collaborating with Mordecai, her husband is, is, is ruling the empire. He lets her do her thing, and he does his own thing. 
So like Priscilla and Aquila, this kind of marriage in ministry includes a duo of public leadership gifts, only in this case, they're leading different entities. As we can see, there are many possible formats for married couples. Unfortunately, a hierarchical view of marriages only supports the first model of marriage, the Peter and wife model, and casts a shadow of doubt and concern over the thousands of couples who are wired differently. In contrast, a mutualist vision makes space for and celebrates every model. And this leads to my final point. Rethink mixed gender leadership teams. Mixed gender leadership teams. So what are the kind of people that might be on a team that leads the church? There may be a, a Lydia or a Timothy or two. Lydia, as far as we know, single. Timothy, single. Leadership gifts. There are single women and single men with leadership gifts. Since the New Testament assigns equal calling to singles and marrieds, one's marital status should not disqualify anyone from leadership. In fact, Paul suggests that single people may be able to invest in the church with a unique sense of focus. So imagine some Lydia's and Timothy's on our leadership team. Then you get, then there'll probably be some Priscilla and Aquila pairs. You got a husband and wife team, like, wow, you guys locked together in this dynamic duo of ministry potency. We, we need both of you in this leadership team. Would you mind? You organize babysitters for your kids if you've got them. Then there may be some Peters um, who, who um, their wife, they got the gift, but their wife is really not wired to, just to be on a leadership team where you're meeting every week for several hours, making decisions, talking through problems, posturing difficult situations, putting out fires. This is the work so often of pastors. And uh, the Peter, in, in soft complementarian churches where you go, okay, you know what? We're going to bring women in. Every guy who's on this eldership team, drag the wife along. Some of the wives love it. They especially love being able to form friendships. But a lot of them, now you've used up whatever slice of their lives they had to give towards this church in an area that maybe wasn't what they wired for. Release them. And then you might have some Deborahs or Esthers who are there and their husbands aren't <laughs> for the same reason. So mutualist churches who build mixed gender leadership teams may try any number of ways of combining these kinds of people. Now, the main challenge I see in this gender-inclusive leadership model is the care and connectedness of Peter's wife and Deborah's husband. Because <laughs> if, you if, you, if you're single, it's not like you're connected to another person. You're, you're all there. If you're Priscilla and Aquila, you're both there. But now there's some of us whose spouse is outside of the team. So my experience has been we need to bring those people into the circle, not necessarily onto the team, but how can we include them? So, for example, in Signal... Julie, who, by the way, has got a leadership gift second to none, um, in her season of life, we have deemed together as a couple, she cannot be a pastor in this church. It's not a gifting thing, it's a capacity thing. So I am on this leadership team, but, but Julie isn't. And Luke and Jen, who've been on this leadership team forever, Luke is right on the precipice. Next Sunday, we're going to make a little bit of a sending moment of stepping off the team, and Jen's going to stay on the team. Every configuration of leadership teams presents new strengths as well as some potential weaknesses. Instead of opting for a simple but potentially sterile structure, Peters and their wives, 
It's much better to embrace the complexities of diversity and rely on the spirit of wisdom who will surely guide each particular leadership team to find a particular practice in its particular season. So I think about Fountain Church, out of which many people in this church grew up. And they had a time when, okay, everybody was a pastor, just bring your spouse along to the leadership meetings. But after doing that a few years, they just kept noticing glaze-eyed. Like, please don't make me come to these meetings. Now they're going, okay. Now they're shifting and they're going, okay, so just the pastors come. And I think every church needs to work at Caesars. I'm not putting a heart on a foster. We need the spirit of wisdom to make it work for these gender-mixed teams. Okay, that's enough of me talking. Can we call up Luke and Jen? And can we call up Jesse? And I just want to invite you guys just to share off the top of your head anything that I said or that I didn't say that you'd like to say about your own journey. So Luke and Jen, as you know, have been on the leadership team of this church forever. Um, Jesse, engaged to gas, um, has been a single up until <laughs> recently and has ministered in this church. She's also done training in the U- U.S. and has been on the leadership team of a church in the U.K. and has experienced, a- and she's in the marketplace. So I thought you'd do great. Yeah, she's, she's, she's everything else. So um, I'd love us to... Um, Share. So once you guys go, and then we'll take Q&A after you guys share. So you can go one at a time. If you want to sit down and wait your turn. Hi, guys. I mean, you know me by now. I'm Jen. And we did not prepare for this. We waited to hear what Eternal's going to speak on, and then... Um, our brains have been working very fast in our seats, I suppose. But um, thank you. Thank you for sharing from your heart. And thank you for spending so much of your time and energy and capacity on this topic and this issue. I, as a woman and as a leader, am very grateful. Um, and you have had to stand in the gap for many women in this room and many men um, who have also... I just want to honor the men in this room, particularly um, for being here, but also you've been standing in the gap for us, and um, I'm grateful. You know, it's much easier to care about an issue if it affects you. This issue affects me deeply. It does not affect you as deeply. In fact, it it could hinder you. It could make you you need to step aside and make space for me. So I think um, it's commendable. Yeah, thank you. Okay, um, these are just some random thoughts that came to my mind as Taryn was speaking, but I'm grateful for the opportunity. I have absolutely no qualification to be up here except that I have been on this leadership team since I joined this church, which was in our lounge back in 2009. And um, it started very organically, very little thought process or procedures behind it. It was pretty much a group of 10 of us in the room, and after meeting together as a church, we probably for a month or two or three, we're like, oh, you should probably have some leaders amongst us because we all got a lot of thoughts and uh, put names in the hat. And my name was one of the, the names in the hat that was drawn and I had quite a few votes. So that's how I became part of this leadership team, guys. So um, it was very formal. Um, but how grateful I am that actually we all came from a background where this wasn't an issue. So it wasn't an issue that my name wasn't in the hat. And I have felt very grateful that I've had a voice and I've had um, leadership and I've had the gift of pastoring people in a very organic way um, ever since then. And um, yeah, 
I feel like one of the gifts as a church, as I was listening to Terrence speak now, is that we get to change culture. And if we don't change culture, culture changes anyway. And so we have a gift of actually having authority in a room, whether it be your workplace or your children's school or your mom group or your chat at the bar. I don't know what it is, but it's like if we don't speak up about these issues, the world's going to make up their own mind about them. And so often people are worried about talking about gender equality because we've also seen a very liberal or a very... Um, I don't want to say ugly armor feminism, but it's true. It can sometimes demoralize men and it can make um, things less equal. And I feel like we are going to have to actually stand in front of Jesus one day and say, what did we do with the things you put on our heart? And this is not a heavy, this is a privilege. Like, I feel like it's such a privilege that I get to shape culture by being part of a community that says, this is how we do gender equality. This is how we get to do marriage. This is how we get to do leadership. This is what authority looks like. And if we don't do that, like if we actually don't do that, there's other people that are going to do it. Um, so I count it a privilege that we get to talk about this stuff in these contexts and make a difference. I think in marriage, I'm learning a lot. This is... Um, this has not been an issue of, of conflict for me in, in terms of church. And as I said, I grew up in, in a in egalitarian church. And um, since I became a Christian at 12 or 13, I've always just um, known Jesus has got different callings on my life. And I've, I haven't actually needed to question this. But in marriage, I've found that there's lots of cultural dynamics that have just shifted in. And um, Luke and I are are very equal in the way we make decisions. But I, I did really resonate when Julie said at times, the thing that stood in the way of the marriage is that I sometimes haven't taken ownership for my own life and my own choices. And there's been times that I keep waiting for Luke to lead our children of the ways of the Lord. <laughs> when is he going to start speaking scripture into their hearts or praying over them in the morning on the drive to school, which is so peaceful. And... Um, when is he going to think about these things that I'm thinking about all day long, but he's not actioning them? And, and this is just a real personal um, thought I'm having over my own life and my own marriage. But I do feel like I've just been in the last few weeks just been given a little bit more responsibility again to take some ownership over what I bring to our marriage and to not rely on Luke to lead us in the things that I lead us in naturally. And I think that there's this idea that this is less work. And I'd like to say it is, but I actually don't think, I don't think all things that are harder are, are bad for us. Or should I say, I don't think the easy way is the best way. So I think sometimes it might be easier to have very set portfolios or very set expectations of men and women. And you can just then fall into the pattern. Um, but I think this level of communication is what is the longevity of a marriage. Um, actually having to go, what season are you in? What season am I in? What is your gifting? What is your calling? What is burning on your heart? It's really not burning on mine. So you go for it. And um, I have spent years in this church at the back of the room while Luke's had to lead worship. Um, you know, we've, we've been through seasons where he's been maybe the, one of two worship leaders. And so I've really had to take a back seat. Um, 
and this has been a, a gift, and it's been my service to the church as a mom at the back of the room uh, while my husband has been leading worship. And then there's been a season like today where Luke, you know, we've got three small boys. It's a lot. And if I'm leading the meeting, you can better believe there's somebody at the back running up and down the stairs with my children. But that is his gift to this community today. And there is not a hierarchy here. I think this, I'm going to end now and give them a, a chance. Sorry. Um, oh, oh, man. Um, what was I going to say? I think we've been speaking a lot about leadership. And there's a lot of women in this room who leadership from the front isn't your desire. It's not where God's called you to be. And I think what we all know, but what should be stated, is this is not a hierarchy thing of this is more important, being up front. If you are called to authority wherever you are, that is the, that is the point. But the thing is, is if you're not letting women have authority in the front of the church, then you're not letting them have authority in wherever, whatever sphere they find themselves in. Because it's a modeling thing. And if you're looking for models of what it is to be a godly woman, and you don't see it in the church context, how do you invite someone into that space and say, this is what freedom looks like? You get to welcome everyone. You get to look after the children. You get to bake the cakes. And these are all important gifts. Please hear my heart. This is not the point. The point is that if they're not given authority to also speak from the front, how is that freedom? How are you free to be you? How are you free to have a voice in the birthing world? How are you free to have a voice in that mother's arena that is hectic <laughs> that you find yourself in, in the business world, you know? So this is the last thing. I think um, leadership is service, ultimately. I don't get this patriarchy. <laughs> I don't get it. It's service. It's hard. It's beautiful to share the space with women. It's beautiful to share the space with men. And I've felt so privileged that we've had on our team James, who's married, but Sarah's not interested, so she, he's been there in his capacity. We've had Fiona, who's off living her best life in India right now, but as a single woman leading this church. We've had Cal and Jess as a couple doing it. We've had all these different models. Um, and I feel like it's the richness that you're actually experiencing here today. And Taryn is beautifully giving us tools and handles and language for taking this further than our own little church. And so I'm very grateful. Thank you. Um, as Jen said, we didn't prepare, but I did frantically write a few things down. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think what we do have is um, Jen and I and a lot of people in this room and I actually have had so many conversations around this, um, especially in the last couple of months. And so we're so passionate about this and we really, we really care about it. And apparently all of us are going to cry on this mic. <laughs> um, and as Terence said, my, I've had sort of an interesting journey. I've lived in a few different countries over the last few years. I was in this church from about 2010, and then I went to 
Bethel to do their school of ministry for three years. And then I left um, Bethel and moved to the UK because I felt like the Lord called me into a sociology master's because he really impressed on my heart how important it is to disciple nations. And if you don't go into the spaces where the people that are actually discipling the nations are operating, it's very hard to do that, or it's at least another way to do that. Um, And in that season, he also just really put it on my heart to to join a church that would, would not have been the place that I might have chosen to feed me, but I felt that it was the space that I needed to go into and to bring some of myself, and that was in a um, in a Church of England church, a beautiful community. I had I had a good couple of years there, but their understanding of um, the woman's place in in church was definitely different to what I'd been used to. And I think what was so great about it was the the Bethel culture, even though I. Th- I think it's mostly this next generation where they're starting to deal with some of the, the fact that the, the women haven't really been preaching, that the senior leadership is still mostly men, but they definitely, when you're there, you never feel like there's a ceiling on you. And you, the women are trained up alongside the men, and the women are called out um, just like the men are. And, and so there was no real thought in my mind that that was ever going to be an issue for me, that there'd ever be some kind of ceiling. I actually thought it was quite an old idea at the time. I was obviously quite naive. And... Um, and, it, and even the way we were pastored, I had a, um, a male married pastor for, for three years, and he's still a spiritual father to me, and I'm so grateful for what he was able to give me because he operated in a level of freedom that is quite unusual. And he had a standard of purity and a standard of freedom that said that I can mentor you. And by the way, we were actually the same age, but spiritually you know, in different places, and he was able to hold me when I was crying because I was having an encounter with God. He was able to bring me into his family and develop a relationship with me, with his wife and with his children, and he did this for multiple young women, and I know that there are risks when you live in a really high standard of freedom and and have an expectation of a really high standard of purity, but we have to start there. We cannot, otherwise it's just control and religion. So I came out of that space and moved into the Church of England where they, they didn't believe that women should preach and they didn't believe that women should lead. But what actually happened was what Taryn was talking about. I went in and he, he, he had an encounter with the Lord and so wanted what was on my life because I, I, I so valued the Holy Spirit that he said, I'm going to um, rethink some of my theology and I'm going to invite you in for a time. And I felt like his heart was so for finding truth that actually that was enough for me. I didn't need him to have changed his mind yet. I just I recognized that his heart was turned towards the Lord, and he, he wanted the, the truth, the revelation. Um, but I suppose in that context, as we were both learning and growing, there, there, were, quite a, there were a couple of experiences where I really got to feel what, what a lower standard of um, freedom <laughs> looks like in that space. And was, you know, subjected to various things like the Billy Graham rule. Does everyone know about the Billy Graham rule? Which is is basically um, male pastors don't have females in their car with them, which I know a lot of people... It, it feels to me very arbitrary. I know that there are a lot of people that, 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 that really do value that, and I know where it comes from is actually a good place. But I, just, I suppose I just wanted to share that in a practical sense, when you put those kinds of things in place, what you're doing is putting in a barrier and a control that doesn't leave room 
um, for freedom and actually then will like oppress somebody. And how it felt when that was said to me for a five-minute car journey when we were late for a service and his wife needed to do something with the children and said, I'm going to come in five minutes. And I said, well, just come with me. And the horror of that moment. And I, I, we had a really good conversation about it and it was all part of our own growing, but that puts shame on women. So if your starting point is you're going to, you're going to tempt me away from my wife, then you won't raise up, you won't mentor, you won't grow um, the women in your community. And so I suppose the, the main thing that I want to say is having changed from that freedom culture into a culture that was definitely still growing into that. Um, I remember phoning a friend at, that had been to Bethel with me, a really close friend, and I said, wow, this, this issue is not just in the Middle East, in fact. This is like... <laughs> I was actually genuinely surprised. I'd had a prophetic word where they said, you know, you're going to go to these places where, where women have been oppressed. And I thought, wow, my, my calling must be to somewhere, you know, like Middle East, no, just to Bristol. <laughs> um, so I phoned this friend and I said to her, you know, this is, this is, this is a, a real issue. And she said, no, it's not. There is no ceiling. And... And I, I really took it to heart because she was someone I still really respect. And I actually know what she meant was like, don't let the ceiling stop you. Um, and I think that that's true. And that's actually what a lot of people say to me is, no, don't concentrate on the ceiling. You know, there's no ceiling. Look, women are getting ordained in the church. Look, this is happening. This is happening. Everyone, you, can, you are preaching. Like, what's your problem? And to say that misses the fact that there are so many women that don't know the difference and they don't know what they're capable of, and those are the ones that are lucky. Those are not the ones that are really, really suffering under patriarchy, especially, as Terence said, in Africa. And so I just think it is the responsibility of all of us to just become aware of what are, what are our biases, what is our con social conditioning, and have the courage to look at it and not be offended. No one wants to be accused of anything, but to actually have conversations with women in your life, have conversations with other women, with men, to unpack what, what we're believing that, that just feels really intuitive and natural. And me and guys have done a lot of that over the last few months as we're preparing to get married because it's been so, you know, it's happening around us. And actually talking through some things, and there's definitely multiple things that, you know, we thought we believed when we actually went deeper and went, oh, no, we actually don't believe that. That's just how we conditioned. And I think in South Africa, unfortunately, you know, we are conditioned into quite a patriarchal society. And so um, I'm going to stop. But the, you know, the, the word, when I was praying this morning, I just saw this lion roaring over this issue and us all just standing in the middle of it. And I think there's something to be said for being part of the roar, even if it doesn't directly affect you or you know, we're, we're all privileged in this room, um, but we get to be a voice for everybody that, that isn't and is, is under this. So, that's what I have to say. So, um, I'm not sure why I'm really here. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm here just to, to bring diversity to the, to the mic. Um, Token man, yeah. I might cry. I, I, I think that. Um, thanks. I think that, I've, for the for the series, I've been sort of in a vacillating between confused, like why we're we doing this, seriously, like are we doing this? You know, like 
and I, I don't mean to belittle the topic at all. I just mean like, geez, are we really doing this? Like, you know, like, do we even need a book about this? You know, and and I, and I don't mean it in any offensive way. I just mean like, you know, it's just the audacity. You know, it's, it's so like confused and heartbroken. I think those are my like two states that I've sort of vacillated between. Uh, on the one hand, like, I can't believe we have to do this. This is crazy. On the other hand, like, heartbroken that we are doing this. And, and I think that um, where that's left me has, the, the thing that's stayed with me the most has been, or a shift in my own um, mindset, has been around what's missing. And I think that that's, um, when you look at this topic, and you look at what has been missing, the women have been missing. That's what's been missing. And so it hasn't been, maybe it sounds like such a simple thing, but for me, it's not been about like, well, you know, you need representation and everything, and, and it's all about equality and all that, but actually, women have been missing. There's something that's been missing from the conversation, something that's been missing from the ministry, missing from the boardroom, the decision-making places. Um, and I, I've been just profoundly challenged by that, you know. Not, not, not that it's, it's, it's not about... Um, the need for it to look like you've got the right makeup in your team or the right, you know. And I think it's great that there's like, the stats show that better decisions are made when there's a woman on the team. I think that's great. But for me, what, what's really impacted my heart has been when, when a woman's not on the team, actually what you're saying is something's missing. And, and, and it's been just a, like such a simple thing that it just keeps looping around in my head. And, and in my business, um, I found myself over the last few months just asking the woman in my team for more of their opinion. And I realized it's so subtle. It's like such a small thing. Um, but I just, I'm, I'm just a little bit more aware and a little bit more like, hey, what's missing from this, this problem we're busy discussing? Like, and I realized it's actually one of their opinions. It's what's missing, you know? Um, so I've been quite challenged and struck by that. And I think that... Um, it's, it's, it's also been really cool just to see um, my wife shine. Yeah. The, um, Jane's been on about this for a long time. And um, it, it hasn't been packaged in a nice way with a book. And, and evenings and wine, you know. Um, it's been packaged in all kinds of ways. Um, some of them have been quite confrontational. Um, and, and I think over the journey, we, we, we met when we were 12. So that's like 100 years ago. Um, and in the journey, uh, I've even seen myself shift um, to realizing how in our early years, you know, we were just growing up in this kind of society uh, where my opinion was more important or I was going to be the natural leader of the family and make all the big decisions and all that stuff. It's just like stuff that just happens, you know. And uh, yeah, if you're not, like, aware of it, it's, it's, it's happening all the time. And I think just, you know, I think this has been for Jen such a, uh, a way of refining what God has put on her heart and in her life and she's just naturally leading so many things and leading so many people in into freedom um, 
and I think that like just observing that and and having um, being able to really focus on our kids over the last while and really just um, hone in on on their spirituality and and their and their growth uh, for me has been such a big gift and just seeing Jen rising up has been even more of a gift you know and I, it's so subtle this stuff because this afternoon we drove past the presidential um, residence and Dan our oldest said to me um, he asked some question about the president's house said, is this the president's house and I said yeah this is the house and the way he asked it I immediately knew he doesn't have space in his head that the president might be a woman crazy huh that was just this afternoon and I, I mean he doesn't know what we're talking about he's not this was just something I picked up in in the in the wording he used we were talking about it and I just realized driving past I was like wow he doesn't even realize that this is a possibility in our country that we might have a female president. Hey? <laughs> and he's not like, you know what I mean? He's not, he hasn't read your book. He's, <laughs> he's learning to read. <laughs> he's nine. Um, so, yeah, I think those are my ramblings. I hope it makes sense. Mm. I don't know what you're going to ask, but ask anything. And um, if you guys can just come up, we just stand together. Speaking to a friend in the UK, and um, he, so this guy, he's a decades-long lawyer and international arbitrator. He's a master at um, hearing both sides, dispassionate intervention, you know, and uh, he's retired, lives in Canterbury. He also loves theology, really sharp at theology. He takes out many years in his 50s, he's obviously got a lot of money and time, and studies theology. And then a few years ago, he goes, hey, I'd love to lean into the complementarian, egalitarian conversation. And maybe I can write a book just getting these guys talking. There's America, Republicans, Democrats, complementarians, and, and egalitarians. It's, this, it's a war, uh, as you can imagine, happening in the American psyche. And he goes, as a British guy, he goes, maybe he can help them. He wants to write a book that tries to get them talking. So what he's going to do is he's going to try to explain to complementarians the strong side here and the egalitarians the strong side here. And he weighs deeply into, he's going to write a 400-page book. He's going to do his work. And he goes, oh, it's egalitarianism right, complementarians wrong. And he, and he just, and so, so that's quite a revelation for him. So now he's going, okay, but I still really want to engage complementarians because that's what he set out to do. So he sends to complementarians his book. These are outspoken complementarians that are denominational leaders. These are the guys that will, and he's this lovely, you know, British gentleman. He says, I'd love, would you be interested in reading my book? 
they all just bat him. No, no, no. No one wants to read his book. Two, three years later, he's like, these guys are not reading my book. He's he just desperate for engagement. He was listening to a lecture by Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. And, and, and this guy says, you know, when there's two different views in, at work, they could both be wrong. They could both have elements of the truth. Um, but let's say one, one side's right, one side's wrong. He's, and Jonathan Haidt, he, he makes observations. Sometimes you don't even need to hear the arguments. Watch the behavior. The side that uses power tactics knows that their position isn't as strong as, as, as they're claiming it is. Or else they wouldn't need to resort to power. The side going, please listen to us. We don't feel you've heard us is very often the right one. Galatians are saying, you haven't even heard us. You haven't even heard us. Now, I'm not saying everyone's like that. You'll get intellectually convinced complementarians, you know, just absolutely persuaded that, you know, their interpretation of 1 Timothy 2 is correct, and have latched onto it. Um, and uh, so, so, but that is a minority. <laughs> the majority uh, are, they are, all their biases are activated by a simple question. If I change my mind on this, I will lose a lot. It's that simple. You're not going to change your mind if you're going to lose your alliances in the world easily. It's going to take a work of God. That's the, I changed my mind and it, it really cost me my alliances. It was the cost, a big cost. But God opened my eyes to Scripture. There's no going back. It was like, well, you know, do I, if, ever you had to, if ever you had to choose between truth and tribe, uh, I, I hope that you would go with truth. <laughs> and for whatever reason, you know, people, unfortunately, when it, an error is pointed out in their tribe, they cannot hear it. It's just too painful. So, and then that is evidenced by the, by the emotional intensity with which they will not listen. They will misrepresent you and attack their misrepresentation. Misrepresent you, attack their misrepresentation. They cannot hear it. They'll find people to defend their view. All they know is which side they're on. And they'll defend that side. It's really sad. I mean, Beth Moore is the poster child of complementarianism in America. She used to wear low shoes whenever she was speaking and there were men. She would use body language just to defer to the men. She mastered the art of being non-threatening to all the men that, you know. And then one day she realized complementarianism was, it was a human construct. She called it a Frankenstein, a terrible one. She was seeing how damaging it is. You should have seen these Southern Baptists turn on her. They spat her out with such ferocity. Um, it's, it is sad. Guys, we need to pray for the unity of the church. It's a, it's, a, it's a result of a fallen world and it's pervasive. Are there any top of mind ways that you've observed it working out in the world? Um, so, I mean, I just quickly, I think there is everything that you mentioned about how women really suffer with the femicide and with the, um, I mean, there's just terrible diseases as a result of rape and that kind of thing that, that are, are just so awful. Um, but I think I think on the one hand, there's also the, just the part that we've never seen yet. I think that the, it, it profoundly impacts men if they haven't got to see the kingdom expressed through men and women together. And the other thing is, um, I, re I read a book recently, well, actually I haven't finished it, but I've started it called 
gender data bias, I think. And it was so interesting because it talks about how all the ways in which patriarchy actually is life or death. So, you know, is life or death. So it's not just it's not just it would be nice if women were equal. It's actually that for most of us, we've been taught how to um, tell if we're having a heart attack by the symptoms that are actually only in men. And crash test dummies are based on men's bodies. And th there's hundreds of examples. It's the most eye-opening book. And all of that affects men as well. That's men and women. If your mother or your wife or your child dies in a car accident because actually that, that, that car was not designed for women, then that impacts you. So I know there's probably a lot of other ways, but those are the ones. I think the biggest one would be that we have not seen the kingdom expressed through men and women, and we're all losing out because of that. I think for me, like, it goes even further to say, like, we haven't experienced the, the father expressed fully, you know, that, like, that's, like, we, we've literally been part of um, a belief system and a way which is not fully expressed, and actually when we acknowledge that, it's like we, it's quite, it's quite something to confront, you know, for all this time, we've said, like, this is our expression of faith, and we're realizing that it's actually missing, and that's quite a, yeah. I'd add the, um, the effect on gender stereotypes, especially gender stereotypes that, that, that are in a man's mind. So firstly, male gender stereotypes, what we would call toxic masculinity. A boy grows up in the world and he feels the pressure to be in control. I mean, that's the kind of patriarchy. To not need, to, um, to, 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 um, to, to, to protect and provide for women. I mean, well, those are bad things, but... You know, he needs to be the provider, he needs to be the protector, he needs to rescue women, um, he controls women. I mean, uh, that, that leads then into the way it sexually uses a woman. These are all gender stereotypes that are actually derivatives of patriarchy. Then, the, the, in this guy's head, it's, and think how damaging those are, it causes him to damage himself. I mean, the stats are twice as likely to experience depression and suicidal uh, tendencies when you subscribe to, to these pressures on himself because it's an impossible standard. It's crushing. And it, and it, it pushes you away from community because patriarchy doesn't cause you to lean into support. It's, the man is strong. And then these guys see women and the gender stereotypes for women all essentially circle around gender inferiority. We need to protect her. She's emotional. She can't think for herself. We need to provide for her. She's a sex object. Um, it, almost every gender stereotype of women pertain to their inferiority to men. So now you've got guys who are hurting themselves. They're also hurting each other. I mean, those toxic masculinity, men play out that pain on each other, and then they're hurting women. And it's easier to hurt someone who is less valuable than you are. And that's all patriarchy. And, and it's back behind the gender-based violence. Quite, I'm not sure the question I understand. <laughs> you wouldn't be if you didn't create Eve. It tells us that he made male and female in his image. And then on the sixth day, the end of that day, he doesn't just use the descriptor. Yeah. 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 I wish you were on the mic because you said it so well and we could have recorded it.
um, the, the comment is that actually back behind gender-based violence is this, these patriarchal understandings. You know, the man is, the man is meant to be the patriarch, is meant to be the provider. There's this pressure on him, and then comes a pandemic, and he's, it turns in on itself, and now he's in a house with someone who is less valuable than him. It's, it's going to play out in the increase of, uh, of gender-based violence. The question is, um, what can the church do about this? And my answer is, um, I haven't thought about that that much. How about you guys? I mean, other than teach. So, 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 so there, are, there are definitely ministries. I mean, how do you... I have thought about it in terms of if we could get into the mind of every person and preach the gospel to them and explain to them but if by that you mean practical ministries, I, that hasn't been a specialty of mine. And I'm hoping that by writing a book like mine, it gives rise to more and more of those ministries. But maybe you guys have got some thoughts? Um, I, think it's, I think it's a fantastic question. Um, my thinking has been like the, the, the topic of women in leadership is the start. It's sort of the opener, you know, and it's not, not going to progress beyond that point. But that's actually the opener to women wherever they are, you know. So I agree 100%. I, th I think that um, this, I mean, the, the danger of this is that it stays an isolated topic around leadership only. Like, okay, so now we should see change over the next 5 to 15 years of more women leading churches, which we hope will be the case and that will be great. But it won't be, it's, it's sort of the start, you know. I've got three boys, and so I think about this almost daily because I think of what it will mean. It's one thing for women to start feeling like they have a voice and that they're being listened to and that there's power and authority. Um, and I think that's what I meant by the ugly arm of feminism. It's like, but this, this is crippling men too if as a church we don't model it how it's supposed to be. So it's modeled by Taryn crying up front and that's not a weakness. That is a strength. That is God breaking into this room and saying, I care about this. And if we are in spaces where my boys don't recognize that that is strength, that's, that's it. It's these small micro moments. It's driving past the presidential house and saying, a woman could be president too, boys. You know that. Some of the best presidents in this world are female. Um, it's my boys going, why are you guys going to church so much at night? And Luke's saying, oh, it's because we're actually talking a lot about why women should be allowed to teach and preach. Oh, like mom does. What's the problem with that? It's, it's all these little things. And it, it actually is like you're saying, this is the one side. This is the ugly other side of men, dear, beautiful men. Like we love men. And, and this is the unity thing that I feel so passionate about personally. Like, this is the beginning of the conversation. Okay, we agree. This is the issue, and this is um, a beautiful new way of thinking. But the second tier of this is that we don't get held up by, like, um, bitterness and um, offended hearts. That's where the enemy wins. If we stay in this room bitter and offended and, oh, you guys are so wrong out there. We have got the answers now. No, no. Like, this needs to translate so that our men grow up knowing that they are worthy and that they are equal and that they are allowed to um, show themselves in, in their masculinity and how it looks. 
I went off track, but thank yeah. you for that question. It's it's powerful, yeah. and church needs to do something. Yeah. <laughs> I just had one thing to add to that, um, which is obviously some of us need to preach it and teach it and, and write books about it, but actually all of us can have conversations about it, and all of us can challenge it when we see it. And it, it's just opening ourselves up to going, I'm going to think differently. And that's actually what repentance is. It's turning around and going, I'm open to thinking differently. I'm open to seeing it in myself. And I'm open to, when I see somebody else doing it, challenging it. And, and, and saying, hey, that, you know, the way you spoke about that woman, or hey, the way that you, did, did you realize that actually you might have just told your child that the, you know, only men can be firemen, or whatever it is. But just taking it in the, in, it is in the small conversations, um, that I think everybody can have a massive impact. Because if we're just teaching it and no one else is owning it, then it goes nowhere. But if we all start to own it, that's yeah. a movement. Yeah. And then one key thing is um, we need to challenge every man to be an ally to women. So it's a big idea that can go, that can spread into the culture. Are you an ally to women? Are you an ally to women? I mean, I'm looking at the guys in the room. I'm like, come on, you guys are allies to women. Um, I'm amazed, if, if I think about my book, how many women read it relative to men. It's, it's, uh, that's like a woman's issue, you know. I mean, it's sad. There are exceptions, and I think dudes can get in the face of other dudes and say, hey, uh, do you not care about the experience of women? Um, on my Facebook, somebody said, you know, you're making such a big thing about this. I mean, it's not like every woman needs to be an elder. You're exaggerating this thing. Like, wow. And you can just hear, yeah, like, t- absolutely tone deaf. That isn't the issue. The issue is a theology and a way of seeing women that impacts every woman. There's a guy who's been serving in a ch- you know, leading a church for decades, never thought about it. It's going to take other guys to go, hang on. Have you noticed the, the trail of bodies behind complementarianism? I mean, I try not to take it on board, but before I'd even written my book, it was like every two weeks I'd meet another woman who's had another story of the effects of complementarianism that so damaged her relationship with God, damaged her ministry, damaged her trust in the church. And uh, I was just like, you know, how do I not take this on in a way that I become embittered? And since I've written the book, I mean, the stories that just, the body count is so high. Yet the person with the theology behind the pulpit is very far away from the body count. But, yeah. um, so the, the real question is why they weren't apostles. They were female disciples. I don't know how many, I, in my book I write about how many, there's only so many named disciples in the Gospels. And uh, five of them are, are women. And then they're like the top 17. So they, they, they don't make the, the 12, I mean the 12 apostles. So the question is, why did Jesus have 12 apostles? And, you know, what's that saying? So the complementarians, not all of them, actually Tom Shrine will say, you know, you can't actually make a strong argument that now you need to only have male pastors. So they, they'll say that. All they'll say is, at least it's evidence that when Jesus was choosing leaders, he chose men. Um, but then you get complementarians who go, no, the reason he did it is that he was preserving patriarchy. So they, are, they infer a reason. But here's the thing. The, the Gospels only give scant evidence for why he chose men. But the evidence is pretty strong. 
he chose it for symbolic reasons. He was reconstituting the, the, the people of God under his leadership, and he was reenacting, in a sense, the, for the first century Jews who were rich in the Hebrew text, who had had the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of, of, of um, Jacob. Ten of them had been lost. It was a failed experiment. And now you've got this guy who's got 12 disciples, and he, and, and he speaks to them of this. So it was rich symbolism. Which is why when Peter preached at Pentecost, we told in Acts 2, Peter preached, summoning the nation to the Messiah, and it says, and the 11 were with him. Just a few days before, he only had 10. He was in a panic to find that 11th person. The, the symbolism would have been lost. Peter needed that 11, those 11th disciples. So in other words, the reason the scriptures give is not patriarchy, it's symbolic reasons. Could you then infer that he prefers men? Well, now you've got to look at the way he treats women, and you go, absolutely not. First evangelist, first witness, first prophet. You know, uh, he just keeps, you know, first person with, with a message um, of, of the resurrected Jesus. He, he gives us every reason to doubt that pat- upholding patriarchy was his reason. You've got to look at the whole Bible. You land a little bit inconclusive if you're only looking at the Gospels on this. Yeah. So, so it would have probably been unstrategic. Jesus at times said, you know, stuff the conventions. At other times he was very strategic. It would have been unstrategic to put women at the leadership at, you know, the, the, of that team in first century Israel. It would have created needless obstacles to people summoning their nation to the, the gospel. Right now, we're inferring that as a possible reason. I think it's a plausible one, but it's not stated in the scriptures. And then Tracy, sorry, and then, and then Dave. But, you know, behaviors, and so much of it is culturally informed. I mean, um, 1 Corinthians 7 does speak about um, dating and divorce, you know, courtship, and he, and, and he gives no reason to think that, uh, in Paul's mind at least, that, you know, guys need to do things that women didn't need to do. So 1 Corinthians 7, you know, basically puts the ball in, the, in both courts, and certainly there's nothing in the scripture that would forbid a woman from making a move on a guy, and you've actually got a good story. I mean, Ruth is throwing herself at Boaz, <laughs> you know, she's making all the moves. She has this guy very slow on the uptake. He's like, oh my gosh, I think she's into me. Um, um, so, so, no, there's no, there's no, so it, it's a situation by situation thing. There's, you don't, the guy doesn't have to make the first move. I was actually talking to someone beforehand and said, so interesting the, the, about Christian marriage. You, you get a girl, if you're a guy, by proposing to her. The moment she agrees, she's now yours. So actually, it was a bait and switch. You made, you made a suggestion, and she said yes, and now, you, now you're a leader. <laughs> it's just a thought I hadn't had before, but someone pointed it out to me. Tracy, you guys want to speak to Tracy? Oh, sorry. <laughs> I thought you were moving in. Um, I, I was just going to say that I think, I think what you're feeling, having been a single woman for a long time dating, is that it is, it is a, um, it's a reaction to the patriarchy. So I don't know what it would look like in a perfect world, but I do know that if I in, have pursued a man, it's him that, that doesn't enjoy it, but that is just his, and obviously this is generalizing, that is the inner patriarchy within him that is responding in that way. 
and that is not that doesn't mean that it's it's right or wrong for you to do it and i i actually feel like that's one of the ways i think in dating is a, is a really um, important way that we can challenge some of those but it is quite costly that if we keep perpetuating those um those norms we're actually just perpetuating that same system wouldn't say it's a wrong thinking. Wrong. I would, sorry, man, I was No, sorry. no, no, do it. I was just like, <laughs> uh, no, I don't think it's wrong. I think you've got to just search your heart and it'll be situation by situation. Yeah. And also, maybe you're a kind of person that would prefer to be pursued. I mean, I have had friends where the girl pursued the guy and now they're married for 20 years, just as well, because they wouldn't have gotten married if she didn't make the move. Yeah. And... My final two cents in is just in light of this conversation, my challenge would be to everybody in marriage and in singleness and in dating and in life and parenting and all of the things, maybe just use this as an opportunity to just do a little bit of soul searching of maybe where that comes from. And I'm not saying there is right or wrong, but I, I do think there's a lot of latent just cultural conditioning in us. And maybe there is a better way. Um, Gaz did still propose, but we really talked about the fact that actually when we get married and whether we get married is a conversation that we're both going to have. And then once we'd made that decision and even set the timing, then he was free to propose. And I'm not saying that's yeah, the model, but I'm just saying that's what it looked like for us to actually unpack some of those things and keep the romance and keep the pursuit, but to just look inward and go, why do we think it needs to be this way and do we still agree? It's just bringing, I think... My key is the, the consciousness. Let's be conscious. Because when we're just doing what we've always done, we, we've often slipped into a cultural slipstream. And when we become conscious of it, we can step out. And you might not do anything differently, but... Mm. Yeah. 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 Great point. Great. Yeah, the church gets to do deep work in the strongholds of the mind, the renewing of the mind. Hey, great point. And then the Holy Spirit, he's, the way of, he's got a way of unlocking the deep wounds. The, that was a good point. So the point is, you, actually, this conversation, we don't only hit through Scripture. We hit it through conversations about lived experience of what feels like injustice and oppression, where you're getting a lot of wounded people from this theology that's an angle in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we all agree. I don't really know how this fits in, but I've just, I wanted to say it tonight, I've been thinking uh, since Terence spoke this morning, um, you know, we try and explain justice issues sometimes by uh, personifying it or, or making it subjective. So there's a woman walking down the street and a man's cat calling at her. Imagine that's your mom or your sister. And I just felt like God was saying, no, no, you don't need to imagine that's your mom or your sister. Imagine that's another human being. It's another human being. So it doesn't matter if it's race or gender or ageism or whatever. It's, it's another human being. And we um, together symbolize who God is. So I love that. And I think we do need spaces where we get to thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you for making this important. Um, yeah, 
I don't know what God's going to do with it, but I know this is for the sake of Cape Town. So thank you for being part of it. Tineo, do you want to come pray? Yeah. Quickly, I actually got a picture when you were speaking, Taryn. Oh, okay, I'll just have <laughs> But um, that's cool. But I just got a picture of um, like a very, very clear picture of a, of a really, really big tree with like a million branches. And um, I was reminded of something my my aunt, she's a very wise woman who um, she was part of the church that you've been part of. And she said, I mentioned that the church I was part of, you were preaching. And she just said, matter of factly, she was like, oh, where Taryn is, the church will grow. And because he's got the gift of evangelism over him. And she said it very matter of factly, but it really stuck with me. And when I saw this picture of this tree with a million, million branches, I just, I don't know trees. So I just Googled and I like scrolled through through pictures, and the picture that most looked like this one was a mustard tree. And I was reminded of the passage that said the, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, and it grows to be the biggest tree in the garden. And I just felt that someone said earlier the word seed, and I felt the, the message that God has given you is a truer, deeper revelation of who Jesus is that is a gospel seed. And the, I just felt the promise that it will grow, and whether it's within church or yeah, I really, yeah, we'll go. So I just felt invitation to just say yes to that seed and pray. Thank you, Father, for yeah, just your your hand in all of the series, and we just yeah, I think of this particular picture, God, and we just want to say yes to your truer, deeper revelation of of Jesus, of gospel, of truth. And so we just say yes to even the seed that you've you've put into here in his, his book, his heart, that he so honestly displayed before us that's um, been caught. And we just say yes to all you're doing, God, to the expansion of that, to the the ten pigs stretching wide. And, and we just say yes to that in his, um, yeah, in his family and whatever church looks like and moving forward yeah we just say yes to it and we open our hearts and just before we go i just <laughs> no, it literally is 20 seconds i really I, that that picture of the lion earlier i just felt like god put that on my heart now again and he just said like don't leave the same like, make sure that you've, you've, you've stepped into that roar. It is already roaring, and it's already roaring over the city, and I believe it's already roaring over the world. But there's something, to, there's a now in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>